0: On this week's episode of Where is the Love? We'll talk about uh, Tuesday's primary results and what they mean for November. We'll talk about a Democratic strategist's interesting warning for the Democratic Party when it comes to the issue of abortion. And we'll also talk about Matthew Crawford's article for Unheard on how COVID was liberalism's endgame. This is Where is the Love? Where's the love? I'm Michael Ware. I'm Melissa Ware. And uh, excited to be back in Baltimore uh, and back with you all for another episode. We have quite a bit we want to discuss. Uh, First, let's uh, just do a recap of uh, what happened on uh, the primaries this past Tuesday, uh, May 17th. Probably the most significant primaries uh, or uh, on, a, on a single day of, of the midterm uh, season so far, uh, and uh, you can uh, you can get a pretty good readout of what happened in the political brief. Uh, so by subscribing at ReclaimingHope.substack.com, we've really um, made a turn in our coverage and. The content we put out to start getting folks prepared for the midterms uh and that includes covering the primaries and so we put in uh frankly uh put in uh, extra hours uh starting uh this month to get you uh, ready for november so that you know what's happening in a way that's uh, hopefully not burdensome uh in a way that just hits your inbox uh uh once once a week in terms of the midterm sort of rundown uh, just so you could uh, stay up to date. Uh, as we barrel towards November, Melissa.
1: Yeah, and one thing I want to mention is that we're going to be running a special with the newsletter um, 50% off over the next couple weeks. Hey, now. So if you're not a paid subscriber, now is the time to become one because an annual subscription will be $25. Whoa. So just $25 for the year um, for you to understand these midterms.
0: Hey, that's pretty good. And let's, let's get to it. Um, in Pennsylvania, which is where a lot of the action was, uh, we have uh, uh, Josh Shapiro winning the Democratic primary for, uh, in the governor's uh, race uh, handily. Uh, and, uh, Doug Mastriano, a state lawmaker who, uh, um, uh, was a, uh, uh question the election results has, has, uh, really tried to align himself, uh, with, with Donald Trump, uh, uh, uh won the primary on the Republican side, uh those watching uh, uh, this race and folks who know Pennsylvania well have suggested that this uh, is good news for Shapiro and Democrats. Uh, uh, They think Mastriano is too far to the right uh, in the state. Uh, Of course, this is a state that Donald Trump won in 2016. Uh, uh, I'll also note, and we, we did cover this in the political brief, there's been some reporting, that Democrats actually helped to boost the chances that Mastriano would win the Republican primary, even as they are now saying what a threat to democracy he is and what abhorrent abhorrent views he has. Uh, this is a playbook that we've seen before uh, and that it's really disheartening to see again. Uh, and so that's just something uh, to, to watch, this is something um, that is deeply distressing to me. Uh, someone who wants to see two healthy political parties uh, and believes that Democrats uh, ought to be hoping for a healthy Republican Party to emerge um, uh, and for healthier Republican candidates to to win, uh, rather than putting voters in these kinds of these kinds of positions so that's the governor's race shapiro is favored we'll see you know i think the onslaught against mestriano is 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 not going to take long we'll watch the polling see how mestriano is able to counter uh but that pennsylvania governor's race is going to be significant of course uh, pennsylvania is a swing state governors have uh influence in how elections are run and so folks eyes are also on 2024. Uh, uh, The other Pennsylvania race is not yet decided on the Republican side. Uh, Dr. Oz holds a less than 1% lead in the Republican primary. uh, uh, and, And there will likely be a recount because of it. Uh, and so uh, it may be uh, some time before we figure out uh, who will be the Republican nominee in that race. Dr. Oz, of course, was endorsed by Donald Trump. Uh, uh, Dave McCormick came second. Uh, McCormick uh, is a uh, a businessman uh, and uh, kind of. You know strikes me i i won't say i, I know him well you know it, it's very interesting to see uh th- this race turn out the way it has you have someone like dave mccormick who who definitely presents more like a youngkin more like a romney sort of business experience sort of more establishment and it, 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 he has a chance to pull it out against dr oz Another theme that you'll see through these primaries uh, are folks winning their party's nomination with, you know, 30% of the vote, 35% of the vote, sometimes even less than 30% of the vote, um, which has a lot of folks, sort of reformers, sort of saying, look, is, is, this, a, is this a healthy healthy uh, thing should we be looking at um you know having having runoffs uh, more uh, more broadly in, in in some of these states and in some of these some of these races um a, as a matter of sort of uh, having democratic input and democratic choice uh, in our election system and so um, uh, one uh, on the democratic side in pennsylvania they didn't have to worry about that, though. John Fetterman absolutely, Melissa just absolutely crushed Connor Lamb. Yeah. Uh, absolutely demolished Connor Lamb. Uh, I am a Connor Lamb fan. I, I, I like him. I, I've watched him, his, his rise uh, in Pennsylvania uh, politics. Uh, I know some of the folks who sort of mentored him. Uh, I think pr- pretty highly of Lamb. And, f- you know, my thought was if he's getting into this race, uh, you, you know, he, he feels like he's in a strong, strong position. Uh, that clearly wasn't the case. Uh, Fetterman has 50, uh, uh, at almost, the time of this recording, 59%. almost 59% to Connor Lamb's 26, meaning f- Fetterman uh, 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 more than doubled, I mean, by far more than doubled. Uh, the number of votes Lamb got in the state. Fetterman was a small-town mayor and then won a surprise. Uh, I mean, it was a surprise to many election watchers. One, uh, uh, as uh, lieutenant governor, that gave him a statewide uh, a platform, statewide, statewide name recognition. Um, you know, I think it's, there's been a lot of tea leave reading about this 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 race Fetterman uh, was embraced by the the left wing of the party at times sort of uh, seemed to be embraced by sort of Bernie Sanders and 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 uh, uh, again that sort of wing of the party uh, others have noted he's actually taken uh, some some moderate positions, uh, but has sort of been forgiven and, and and still been embraced by the left. And the left has overlooked some of the positions he's taken that they uh, the, uh, that the left wing of the party hasn't overlooked in in other cases. Um, I I look at this race and I look at Fetterman and see um, someone who came out of local governance dealing with people's problems and trying to solve them in a personal way. Uh, someone who, um, you know, I find it hard to believe that he sort of had uh, a statewide or national political ambitions uh, when he took, when he ran for mayor, Um, And so I think that sort of uh, the localism of it, the fact that Fetterman didn't seem like he was uh, a carefully consultant, curated candidate, I think served him well. And it will be interesting to see if other candidates like him win in the Democratic primary. Um, uh, And so, so that's, my I, I don't view it as a as as an ideological win. I do think that there's something about about Fetterman's sort of affect and the fact that he had this experience in very local governance that that I think was was attractive uh, to people. Uh, so so that's that's Pennsylvania. Pennsylvania is going to be. Uh, a critical state. There were other, you know, significant races uh, in Pennsylvania. We did see, um, we did see uh, Summer Lee um, uh, win uh, a, uh, a surprise uh, 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 in the twelfth district. Uh, Summer Lee overtook the incumbent uh, uh, or uh, yeah, Steve Irwin um in the democratic primary i'm sorry not not the incumbent uh but uh summer lee was a more progressive candidate and she was able to to beat out uh, a more establishment uh, candidate in in steve Irwin. that was a significant race keep your eye on charles booker uh in kentucky Uh, charles booker will be facing uh, uh will be running against rand paul in kentucky Uh, Democrats spent a ton of money to try and beat Mitch McConnell in 2020. That was money uh, uh, wasted. Uh, But Booker is a charismatic candidate with a lot of energy. He's working hard. He travels around the state. uh, And uh, I, I don't think sort of Democratic activist groups will be able to resist um, pouring money into that race. It's going to be interesting to see if Booker tries to go after national attention to attract money, uh, so that so that he could have a real war chest, or if he tries to run a more a quieter local race. That's going to be a key dynamic, uh, key dynamic there uh, in North Carolina. Uh, Madison Cawthorn. Mm-hmm. Uh, Madison uh, will not be serving in Congress. He lost his primary to, I mean, to say a more establishment candidate uh, uh, it is almost meaningless. Anyone yeah. would have been. Uh, but I think uh, Kevin McCarthy, the leader, uh, the Republican leader in the House, is uh, is not sad to see Madison Cawthorn go. Those are some of the big races uh, some of the some of the big primaries. Obviously, there are uh, there are others. It looks like Kurt Schrader in Oregon's fifth uh, uh, is uh, is going to lose uh, to a another a challenger from the left, Jamie McLeod Skinner, uh, and so that's a significant uh, thing to watch. So, all in all, it was a it was a relatively you know the the left wing of the Democratic Party is is claiming some. Some real wins. Now it'll be interesting to see if those, uh, if sort of the the candidates who won from the left are able to win in the general election. Uh, uh, but but it, it was it was generally a, a, a good night for the left wing of the Democratic Party. Uh, Republicans are breathing easier in some places. Uh, they don't have to deal with Cuthbertson anymore. But. Someone like Mastriano uh, could could be a, a problem both in the state of Pennsylvania, but also uh, nationally. I think Democrats are likely to to try and uh, nationalize that race for the purpose of of tying Mastriano to uh, Republicans elsewhere uh, as well. And so that's the primary update. We're going to take a, a quick break. Uh, when we get back, uh, we'll we'll talk about uh, some of the latest news. Again, sort of the 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 fallout from the Dobbs leak, uh, and some some interesting articles have been written, and also some interesting decisions in the Catholic Church uh, have been made this week. This is where is the love. <laughs>
1: We're back to discuss the aftermath of the leak of, on the Dobbs case. And so we're what a couple weeks three well what three weeks out from this um, from this leak, Michael. And you know both uh, both sides are continuing to work um, this fallout. So Michael, this week, you saw an article in particular that that sparked your attention. Do you want to discuss it a bit?
0: Yeah, sure. So my old colleague, Liz Smith, Liz worked for uh, uh, the Obama campaign. Most recently, she was senior advisor to Pete Buttigieg uh, and has a book coming out called Any Given Tuesday. Liz wrote a a column for the Post, which uh, nothing she wrote will really be, the content won't be surprising uh, to folks. Uh, it's the fact that she wrote it, which I think is significant, um, someone in in her position. And the basic argument of the case, and, and, you know, Liz is pro-choice. She's worked for pro-choice candidates, worked for pro-choice organizations. She is, uh, you know, unabashedly pro-choice. Uh, and she's arguing from that perspective that now is... Uh, not the time for Democrats uh, to be a sort of seeking to push the Overton window on how the American people uh, think about abortion. Uh, and it's not the time for sort of uh, activists to be sort of pressuring Democrats to move further to the left on abortion in this in this moment. Now uh, she, well, one thing that was that that I particularly appreciated about Liz's article is, though her background is is comms, uh, uh, she doesn't stick to just rhetoric. So she talks about the the quote language policing that is increasingly in vogue on the left in recent years. Uh, and this is her writing. This is Liz writing. Democrats criticized President Biden who supports codifying Roe v. Wade into law and and reverse the ban on federal funds, uh, and and supports reversing the ban on federal funds for abortion for not using the word abortion enough in his public statements. Last week, the House Pro-Choice Caucus released a memo denouncing common sense terminology such as choice and safe, legal, and rare as harmful, and urged members of Congress to instead swap in language such as decision and safe, legal, and accessible. Uh, uh, Then Liz writes, at this moment, with fundamental rights under attack, changing commonly understood labels that tens of millions of Americans identify with, such as pro-choice, would be like trying to rename the Titanic as it sinks. Uh, And then I just want to read this other sort of important point that Liz has. She says most Americans don't walk around every day calling themselves pro decision, nor do they lament that abortions are too rare, Um, and so so she gets at this this sort of language purity, this this uh, litmus testing on rhetoric that has happened on the left. But again, I really appreciate she didn't stop there, she goes on to say the search for language purity matches the quest for policy purity. Consider the recent vote on the Women's Health Protection Act in the US Senate, which was so broad in its provisions, superseding all italicized, all state level restrictions on abortion and all italicized exemptions for religious institutions that it couldn't begin to win a majority vote. Even a filibuster free Senate wouldn't have been able to send that bill to the president's desk because there was no effort made to earn the support of moderates who support permanent but more limited abortion rights. So uh, for those of you who listened to the uh, the episode, I think last week or two weeks ago, uh, I I said that that same thing from, from my position, which is a uh, pro-life position. Very interesting uh, and, and frankly admirable for Liz to just state the facts about the WHPA. And that, Melissa, takes me to the second sort of item I wanted to touch on, which is that uh, on Friday, a news uh, came out that the Archbishop of San Francisco, Archbishop uh, Cordelione, uh, Corda uh uh, uh uh, expressed that he would bar Speaker Nancy Pelosi from communion. Now, this isn't a, a new issue. Uh, uh, John Kerry uh, faced it. Uh, there were even questions uh, around Joe Biden uh, uh, that, that were basically relieved because um, he's, he's been in the same uh, home parish, uh, and he wasn't traveling as much as a presidential candidate that usually would, uh, especially on Sundays uh, due to COVID, or else I think we would have heard uh, more about it. Um, and sidebar, if if his opponent wasn't, wasn't Donald Trump, I think uh, you would have heard more about it. But here, with Trump out of the White House, I think some conservative Catholic leaders feel... Um, somewhat freed up to make moves on this. Now, I should say uh, more progressive Catholics have have said, well, you don't see uh, uh, Catholic uh, uh, leaders moving uh, to uh, uh, bar uh, pro-death penalty Republicans from taking the communion. Not gonna get into those uh, debates here. there, there are a long standing sort of critiques about whether Catholic, uh, uh, the U.S. Uh, Conference of Catholic Bishops puts uh, adequate weight behind sort of more progressive leaning policies that it holds on poverty or anti-death penalty as it does around religious freedom and abortion. That's neither here nor there. I, I think the, the one point I wanna make here is um, is that uh, as Liz's column sort of indicates, we have moved into a new era of abortion politics and uh, the, 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 the house vote on the Women's Health Protection Act is not the kind of vote Speaker Pelosi would have even allowed to take place a decade ago. Uh, She's expressed uh, at times sort of personal discomfort and yet as a reaction to to Dobbs, as a reaction to uh, Republicans appointing folks on the uh, appointing uh, uh, judges to the Supreme Court. uh, We've seen even Speaker Pelosi, I think, get pushed to the left uh, on on this issue. And, uh, you know, I, I'm I'm not Catholic. Not my role to sort of speak into particular uh, pastoral decisions that uh, that Catholic uh, 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 leadership is going to make. Uh, uh, ho- however, I, I do just want to. I've seen some commentary that's just like, you know, why why now? And this is such a political move. And I just think it's. It's, it's, it's worth stepping back and just recognizing that the kinds of policies Democrats are advancing now, that, that Joe Biden is advancing now, that Nancy Pelosi is advancing now, uh, um, are not the kinds of policies that they would have even expressed being okay with a decade ago, 15 years ago uh I, I I will say if I had to if I had to guess part of uh, I, I think they they view it as'll le- we'll we let the left get some uh, uh get some of their energy out sort of express themselves they knew that the WHpa wasn't going to go anywhere and so let's just have the vote um but yeah a, a statement from the White House came out supporting it Speaker Pelosi you know, supported it. And so, uh, you know, I I will refer you to an interview that Gloria Purvis conducted, um, which I thought was excellent. Uh, It was a long interview, and I I would love to know if, uh, you know, if there was an insistence made that it was a long interview. She asked... um, Polite, respectful, but also very direct questions, including um, sort of critiques about why this sort of um, this sort of uh, the the sort of act of barring politicians from, from communion are so often leveled uh, uh, against Democratic politicians on abortion but not uh, on Republican candidates on, on issues where, where they disagree with with uh, the position of, of the Catholic Church and the archbishop responds surely not to everyone's satisfaction but it's it's a really valuable conversation I would actually um, I would urge folks to to read the interview um, before sort of, Making statements about uh, about the issue, and before making statements about um, about about the archbishop or Catholic leadership or that kind of thing, and we'll we'll include the interview in the show notes. And so, um, this the Dobbs decision could be coming uh, anytime now. I think uh, many of us were expecting a June decision, uh, early June. I think now it's you know it's hard to tell is the incentive here to expedite the decision uh, or will they try and push it back because the leaking of Alito's opinion draft opinion has uh, so roiled things um, but I, I think it's still a good idea to to have your eye on early June uh, knowing though that. Uh, new Supreme Court decisions are, are going to come out as, as early as this this coming Monday uh, but but that's where things stand uh, with, with Dobbs Congress has not been able to act we'll see if bipartisan uh, legislation if the Collins Murkowski effort picks up steam there's also been reporting Senator Kane has been who Senator Kane uh, 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 was pro-life, uh, stood by his position supporting the Hyde Amendment after a little bit of back and forth during the 2016 campaign. Uh, there, was, there have been some reports that Senator Kane is pursuing uh, pursuing some kind of legislative pathway here, uh, but but no no progress has been uh, uh, made on on that front. Uh, meanwhile, the the decision the decision looms. Uh, Melissa, anything to add before we uh, take another quick break and then we'll uh, talk about this this article?
1: I mean, (laughs) I'm about to be very frank here. I just can't believe Democrats are actively putting themselves in a position with the WHPA with something that will not pass when they claim to so care about the rights of women and the rights of women to have a choice over what happens to their bodies. I just can't. To me, like it's just... And Liz... Liz, uh, My favorite part of Liz's um, op-ed in in the Washington Post is around language. Because in my head for quite a while now, I've been calling it the Dorita-ing of democratic politics. Um, So Jacques Derrida, the post-structuralist who posits the idea that nothing exists out of side of language um so basically everything exists because we give a name to it that because we, you know language defines things um that democrats believe that the purity of language is so important when um liz just shows very succinctly and quickly in her op-ed just how um short-sighted it is and just how detrimental it is to democrats actually getting something done um on abortion, I mean, basically on a lot of different things. Like I, I call it the de-reading of, of democratic politics because this whole purity test around so much of how things are talked about or defined, especially on the left, is just, I mean, it's it's everything.
0: Yeah. I, I do think not just on this issue, but on others as well, I, I think um, it would— It just became untenable to the activist wing of the party and then the the elected officials that sort of they they got behind and that and then those elected officials are invested in the activist wing to constantly be in the posture of just pointing out extremism on the right and then sort of trying to defend Sort of the reasonableness of sort of uh, your views, there was a there was a lot of pent up desire, and I'll say this is like from the uh, uh, from the early Obama years, and it's from you know uh, the, the idea that you know John Kerry was like a safe. Safe person to, to run in 2004, Al Gore was safe to run in 2000. Even to some extent, you know, Bill Clinton was the moderate DLC or uh, 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 Blue Dog uh, in '92 and '96. And so there was all of this pent up sort of desire to be setting the terms of debate uh, to be to be on the on the front foot sort of expanding things in your direction to your point, Melissa um, if you want to set the terms of debate uh, all power to you, the, the terms you're setting uh, should probably be in your favor. <laughs> yeah that's, I mean, that's
1: exactly what I'm talking about here that um, and you know the studies that Liz she cites like, I think maybe one or two studies. On where the American people broadly sit on abortion, and nobody really sits on either end. They kind of sort of sit in the middle, you know, allow abortion, but have some sort of restriction on it. Um, And she then mentions like people are not calling themselves pro-decision, you know, alluding to the latest language change that is being pushed right now. And it's just constantly going back and forth on things like this where like don't get me wrong here anybody who's listening i i believe that language is extremely important and how we say and name things is 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 a good thing to think about is it the ultimate thing to think about the number one thing you th- should be thinking about sometimes especially when you're staring at a potential change that would go against and i'm speaking to democrat that to a lot many democrats here that would go against something that you know you strongly do not believe in, then that you would rather not happen, and you would rather Roe not be um, uh, ter- uh,
0: overturned, overturned not undermined, yeah.
1: undermined, whatever. <laughs> you, the, the language should be the most. Language should not be number one here right now. Yeah, um, and it's just constantly happening, issue after issue. Language is becoming number one, and then Democrats sit and wonder why they can't get anybody on board, or the voters are not voting for them. Um, especially if like, they're, mo- they're, they're like the Big Ten party. And it's like when you constantly are focusing on language, you make your tent smaller and smaller and smaller, besides the actual policy choices that you're making.
0: Yeah. No, absolutely. Well, uh, we're going to take another quick break. When we get back, we're going to talk about this article from Matthew Crawford on COVID and liberalism. This is Where Is the Love? All right, we're back. This is Where is the Love? And, Melissa, we saw this article uh, from Matthew Crawford, who's a senior fellow at the University of Virginia's Institute for Advanced Studies and Culture. Uh, he wrote at Unheard that COVID was liberalism's endgame. That's the headline uh, subhead is liberal individualism. Liberal individualism has an innate tendency towards authoritarianism uh, and we spent a bit of time this evening talking about it, um, it it's it's a uh, it's a dense article not terribly long uh, you could listen to it uh, right on the site which we will link to in the show notes for uh, it's about 20-minute listen um, uh, Melissa w- what stuck out to you about this article and the argument Crawford lays out here about what COVID showed us about uh, liberalism and the, sort of the the, the, the the way our politics is, is working.
1: Yeah, so just to place ourselves here, um, what this article is ultimately about, and honestly trying to summarize exactly what this article is ultimately about. Please clap for me after this because it's going to be a bit difficult. I would say overall, he uh, Crawford is sort of contributing to the spate of articles of like the last 6, 9, 12 months honestly the last couple of years of people trying to explain why are we such a mess in the United States um, and he uses COVID as a specific example of um, how he thinks uh, the problems in the United States are sort of working itself out in COVID and um, those who are most concerned about hygiene and things like that, why they? Why people have reacted the way that they have. And so um, what Crawford does is he looks at Hobbes and he lo- looks at Locke, two Enlightenment thinkers. Um, and he says that basically over the past 30 years um, or so, we have sort of turned away from the sort of rational, self-governing, Framework of Locke, and we've turned toward more towards Hobbes, and specifically more towards the sort of anthropological liberalism that comes out through Hobbes or the sort of um, metaphysical aspects that come out of Hobbes. Um, And so, with COVID, he uses that as the example by saying, um, you know, those who are heavily concerned about the spread of COVID have been able to sort of identify, who, who are more, they are more identifying with fear and with the idea of a trying to avoiding death but in how they, in how they operate they're more so naming like, oh I'm thinking about the other, I'm thinking about the common good by putting on my mask or by acting in such and such way I'm thinking about immunocompromised people when in fact Crawford thinks that these folks are just trying to avoid death which is ultimately part of that sort of anthropological liberalism of of a Hobbesian view. So, Michael, I wanted to discuss discuss this article with you and for listeners to um, hear what we have to say because I do have some hesitations or issues with Crawford here, but there are some things that I feel like I definitely identify with Um, and more sort towards the the beginning of his essay. Um, Here's this one quote. The 90s saw the rise of new currents in the social sciences that emphasized the cognitive incompetence of human beings deposing the rational actor model of human behavior. This gave us nudge theory, a way to alter people's behavior without having to persuade them of anything. It would be hard to overstate the degree to which this approach has been institutionalized on both sides of the Atlantic. The innovation achieved here is in the way government conceives its subjects not as citizens whose considered consent must be secured but as particles to be steered through a science of behavior management that relies on pre-reflective cognitive biases so right away uh, i go back to my undergraduate and master's training and 100 percent uh i would say that m- the majority of my training was definitely more under a hobbesian view of the world and specifically um, with uh, talking about the sort of cognitive in- incompetence of human beings, to use that quote from Crawford again. Um, so just to sort of say, yep, at least in the international relations world, uh, at least uh, 10 years ago when I was getting my master's degree, this was absolutely the institutionalization that Crawford is talking about here. Um, and then it, then leading into that, what actually what he presents in these couple of paragraphs here. It gets basically in the end after these few paragraphs, he gets into um, technocracy and the problems of technocratic thinking, and it imme- all of this immediately made me think of the EU and how the EU operates, and why it was created in the first place and what the EU has turned into in a lot of ways. And I love the EU. I actually think it's an extremely helpful governing body body in this world. But if we were to go, if we were to actually pit it into Crawford's arguments here, it, it would it would match up pretty well <laughs> as being a sort of very technocratic governing body, one that actually um, is undemocratic a lot. Um, <laughs> that yeah. if you were yeah. to take it, in, work with me here, um, if you were to take people out of the equation and say actual governments, the EU acts as if the actual governments, the actual states that are in the EU, all 27 countries, it acts as if those country governments are not competent enough to actually govern themselves because the Euro- Europe went to war twice and the EU was created to prevent future war. Right, 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 so right. it was prevented as if the state was not smart enough to be able to avoid a third world war. Um, and so, and I also think, and he kind of alludes to in this article as well, this idea of like um, uh, peace and where that comes from and, um, Uh, you know, I've been arguing against for weeks now, especially since the Ukraine war started, um, that the EU, despite being made for peace, doesn't automatically guarantee peace, especially if it is sort of um, based more so in this idea that states actually don't know the best for themselves, that actually this EU, this large EU governing body, which again, like I say, um in a few of the different bodies within the EU are actually quite undemocratic. Like, they're not voted on by the people within these countries. And he
0: talks about that. He doesn't Um, bring it into the international discussion, but he talks about how this keeps on filtering. He's like the decision-making... Keeps on getting filtered up and sort well, of out of democratic in, accountability, and so
1: that's all in these few yeah. paragraphs. So that's in me, that's why I was like, oh, you know, he could easily bring in the EU and talk about the EU right here. Yeah, um, how a lot of different. I mean, even into the courts, like the European Court of Human Rights, and how decisions in the states are sometimes brought up there because um, the EU disagrees with how the states have decided on certain issues. Um, and I mean, there's problems all the time. And that's why, you know, you get Euroscepticism. It's why you get the UK breaking off from the EU. It's not just because of like for economic reasons or all the reasons that people were blaming for Brexit, but like people could not actually, like the voters of the UK who did vote for Brexit could not see how this larger supranational governing body could actually know better than themselves living in their own country and what would actually benefit the UK. Um, anyways, I just wanted to bring that in here because I thought that would actually be a really interesting example here. Um, and then actually on Twitter, you quoted something from this wait, article. Wait, 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 wait. you want to uh, go back yeah, and I wanna, react? Yeah, oh, I want to jump.
0: Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. jump in on the... So, um, so Cass Sunstein has actually talked about this a lot. And I, I had the opportunity to... Uh, Michael Lindsay, when he was at Gordon... Uh, You'll remember this. I got to speak to student government, uh, Christian college student, uh, body presidents and vice presidents Mm -hmm. all came together for like a, like a retreat. And I got to, it was one of the, like the coolest things. I'm still in touch with some of them now, but I got to speak to this group. And one of, one of the things I pointed out was this Cass Sunstein sort of observation, um, uh, about sort of the responsibilities of bureaucratic decision making, so using like the the classic example of, you know, you could offer the same food um, at a uh, at in a school cafeteria uh, sort of uh, buffet,
1: mm-hmm.
0: um, but people will choose differently depending on how. The food is ordered. Yeah. So if like the apple is eye level and the cake is sort of you got to reach higher or it's just not as immediately present, then people will make, uh, quote unquote, sort of healthier, healthier decisions. And of course, Cass Sunstein is talking about this as someone who has had as an individual who has probably had more say in the regulatory functioning of the American Mm -hmm. government uh, of like very few individuals have had more sort of input there. And so I do feel this, this tension between like that is an unavoidable reality, Mm -hmm. which is that decisions get made through the functioning of bureaucracy that uh, that really are separate from direct democratic. Uh, you know, the school board isn't isn't telling the school cafeteria folks how to arrange food, mm-hmm. um, but the principal of that school and the person who runs the cafeteria has some autonomy within that. Uh, uh, basically a government a government position, public schools are, are government bodies, to, to, to make those decisions. Uh, and so, uh, you know, I feel the tension between uh, viewing, you know, the sort of nudge theory stuff as just an innate responsibility of like bureaucratic sort of management. Um, but then also like what happens, which is to Crawford's point, what happens when you start thinking about this power so much that the that that this aspect of uh, the government's role or any sort of like um um, implement or any sort of like authority Mm -hmm. but but let's stick to government um what happens when you start not just being aware of uh, how the current decisions you're making could influence uh, sort of the, the the people within your within your sphere, um, but what happens when you start sort of uh, multiplying the 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 you know you start asking yourself well if I could influence people here through how uh, I arrange this particular scenario, what other kinds of scenarios can I arrange? Mm-hmm. Um, how? Um, might there, especially in a time of polarization and, uh, uh, sort of, uh, congressional, uh, lethargy, uh, legislative lethargy, um, do you have, do you have, and it's a rhetorical question, the answer is yes, we do. Do you have executives saying, uh, well, I can't move things through legislative bodies, um, the courts are restraining me if I sort of move through some administrative actions. What other kinds of influence and power do I have that I could cultivate? So I, I just the nudge theory stuff was very interesting, mm-hmm. and that that is that is technocracy. this this mm-hmm. it, it's it's the awareness that the way uh, policies are formed and the and implemented. It's sort of the hyper-awareness of the way uh, sort of you you implement uh, uh, policymaking that so much of the difference is within that decision-making, which is not directly sort of democratic, uh, and then sort of of, uh, that awareness propelling sort of the growth of that power-making in a way that, yeah, the American uh, uh, voters go, all of these decisions that you're being made are, are uh, being made using authority that you were granted, but not for this. Um, mm-hmm. it, so so that, that really resonated with me as a democratic problem, uh, yeah. for sure.
1: Yeah, no, 100%. And, you know, you were thinking, about, and I was thinking about the EU. <laughs> yeah, yeah, right. thinking about domestic politics because I'm always thinking about the international. Um, yeah, but the one other thing that I wanted to point out here as well that I thought was just super interesting, um, especially because this will harken back to some things I've said on the podcast. So I just want to quote here again. And uh, so um, Crawford says, let us acknowledge that many of our hygiene maximalists. So again, this is going back to the, Um, COVID as his example, he talks about hygiene maximalists, people who are the most concerned about not spreading COVID, who are most concerned about the idea of zero COVID. So getting back to quoting him, let us acknowledge that many of our hygiene maximalists are acting not out of fear for themselves, but in the name of the common good. And this is attractive. Indeed, maybe deep blue COVID culture was prompted by dissatisfaction with liberal Individualism. We have unsatisfied longings for belonging, for anything that could pull us out of the liberal mindset of rights and recall us to duties. The pandemic provided an opportunity to rise above the selfish concerns of the bourgeois and discover a public spiritedness in oneself. Zero COVID is a heroic battle to join, which requires a literal effacement of the individual. As in any war, those who have answered the call recognize one another, not by their faces, but by the uniform, the N95. So I think it's really interesting that he mentions belonging here. And I know yeah. that I've talked about belonging on this podcast a lot. That for me I think one of our one of the fundamental things that is like built innately into us, given to us by God, is this longing for belonging. Um and it's where, you know, I think a loneliness epidemic is coming from. It's where I think this over-identification with any group that you can find is coming from. Um, I just think it's really. In- I just. I wish there was more writing on belonging because I think it's what sort of psychologically drives us so much. But it's something that's sort of either mentioned in passing, like in this, um, or it's not thought about at all. Um, I wanted to mention that because then it does go into the next paragraph here, where I get what the point of w- what Cro- what Crawford is trying to do with bringing up COVID as, COVID as an example of this Hobbesian and, and sort of Lockean sort of. Um, binary dichotomy that he's trying to illustrate through this emergency issue because you know at the beginning of this uh, at this of this essay he talks about how liberalism is sort of always fueled by the next emergency
0: right and Um, emergency overriding that what is supposed to be the typical uh sort of course of yeah, yeah yeah
1: yes um so this next paragraph that happens after the one i just read it um he says, This is inspiring, but it is also a little creepy, at least for those of us leery of mass movements. There is a cult like quality to public spaces in the Bay Area, which is where Crawford lives. I'm going back to the quote one may efface oneself, not out of fear, but out of identification with the vulnerable one, who is currently el- elevated the immunocompromised. How many of these are there really? It doesn't matter. Note that in this Hobbesian dynamic, the politics of emergency is intimately tied to victimology. <sighs> Part of the problem that I have a lot of the time with writing that is so philosophical is that um, it can be quite callous. Like I get the point that he's making here, but and he's you know he's really concerned about these hygiene maximalists and how he thinks that in a lot of ways like how they're operating is irrational. It's it's here where the article just starts to go a little bit well yeah. off for me.
0: So so I think he certainly would have. I think he would have. Crawford would have benefited from writing this. Uh, at a publication where he wasn't so certain that uh, that his readership wouldn't already agree with him. Yes. Yeah. So there are just several points in the article where he sort of assumes conservative readership, mm-hmm. um, which is fine. I, I, I just am interested in the way he would have, uh, and, and written his argument differently if it was, uh, goodness, like at the Boston review or the Atlantic or, or the Atlantic. Um, uh, but right so like center left or the Boston Review which is like further yes, like yes. further left like I'm interested in, in what different kinds of decisions he would have he would have made um, so, so, so yeah so, so I, I agree with you there are a few there are definitely a few points at which he um, is sort of the the, the tone is uh, the, the tone is off I, I did like um, yeah well, let, let me let me say this, which is right. Um, I think one of the moves he probably would have made is to reference the sense of belonging that those who uh, would not, who, who performatively uh-huh. would not wear masks, uh-huh. would ha- would Thank have. You.
1: Yes, um, and, gonna, and, I was about to start getting into that, but you've mentioned it first. And right,
0: so like, so like some of these uh, videos of uh th- these uh sort of folks on airplanes who are refusing to uh-huh. wear a mask one thread that i've noticed in them is like this uh they're always looking to bring others to their side yep. even though from any rational perspective um, you're you're doing a very antisocial behavior if for no other reason than everyone on the Plane, everyone on the plane is gonna get kicked off, but but over and over again in these videos, people are like, you know, wake up, people like, join with me. Like, can't you can't you see? Like, we need to stand up for our freedoms. Like, you know, jo- join with me. They can't, they can't, you know, like, uh, if we all refused, uh, the authorities wouldn't be able to like take us down. Um, and of course, like. Uh, Typically, you know, um, not only do they not get many to join them, uh, but but sort of the antipathy builds uh, from uh-huh. others on the plane. But so that that sort of that sort of yearning to um, now, of course, they're doing that because though because they do find solidarity online and uh, with uh, sort of their more constructed sort of uh, political communities those who agree with them of course uh you know th- i'm assuming they get kicked off the plane and they call up a friend and 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 talk about this great stand that they took and so so i i wish crawford would have talked about the sense of the, the way this belonging the way this sense of a victimology mm-hmm. is is not just with the the double maskers who are uh Riding their bike through Berkeley, um, we actually see it across our politics.
1: Yeah, no, I, I completely agree. I read that paragraph not because I thought it was callous; it's because I felt like I could easily come up with the example um, for those who think completely opposite to um, folks that he th- says are, you know, hygiene um, maximalist or extremists or whatever. Um, the final thing that I wanted to discuss with this particular article the and the thing that bothered me throughout and especially when I got to the end where um, Crawford uh, it's a very short paragraph because I mean most of this essay is sort of more of a diagnosis and at the very end the last paragraph, he says that he calls it the million dollar question, you know, would it be possible to reclaim the blessings of Lockean political liberalism and back off from the aggressive metaphysical debunking of Hobbesian anthropological liberalism or is it a package deal? And so that's kind of like a proposal of like the solution of how can we sort of get through what ails us from from his point of view? And my my automatic question is especially in this day and age with so much of people and so much pernicious polarization, and I guess, um, just sort of turmoil as to how we organize ourselves. My question is, why is it Hobbes or Locke? Why is it stuck on enlightenment thinkers? Why is liberalism the thing with which we measure against? And if it's that problematic, why aren't we why don't why aren't we ever discussing a new framework of being and living? I mean I, I say this all the time that the pendulum, especially socially, we tend to swing from one end to the other, one extreme to the other, and we never sort of land anywhere. We just sort of course correct. And by course correct, I mean we overcorrect. And it kind of seems like, okay, let's go back to Locke instead of Hobbes. And it's just like a huge course correct again. And I'm just, this dichotomy, this binary, it doesn't seem like it would serve us well. Especially, and I mean, the. I mean, as a Christian, uh, sort of taking 100% of the cues of how we organize ourselves from Enlightenment thinkers just strikes me as just something that I'm going to contemplate and have probably some pro- a lot of problems with.
0: Well, yeah. I mean, so right. So um, I, I think that we're going to see, you know, we're in like, episode 2 of you know this was a star wars you know trilogy we're now in like the the uh, you know the empire strikes back you know portion okay. which is you know liberalism has been taking a beating over the last yeah. you know decade decade and a half um so right like i mean this is what on the religious Sort of the Catholic right. This is what the integralism conversation, which is like, let's break out of these, the, the these sort of uh, the, the 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 confines of liberal thinking, which hasn't served us. Uh, I think we're seeing in a more, um, uh, in in a uh, some of the leftist thinkers who talk about democracy. Uh, that's not confined by sort of liberal proceduralism I think we're seeing that our friend uh, Osita has a book coming out about uh, um, democracy and uh, he he's argued in the past that uh, we need a new constitution like we mm-hmm. should just scrap the Constitution I think so I think on the left and right we're seeing these attacks on liberalism I, I will say it's funny like you said what you said because I, I mean so I I have, um, my, reading like Patrick Deneen's book, uh, you know, my, my thing has always been, um, I think a compelling case and like the historical record uh, uh, or a historical narrative has been, is told about the ways in which liberalism resulted in in our particular context in sort of uh, 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 a toxic sort of individualism. Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, um,
0: that's right. I think the question I've always had is: is that the natural, inevitable end of liberalism, mm-hmm. or is there can can we build towards uh, is it possible to have a communitarian liberalism
1: mm-hmm.
0: uh, and what what would that what would that look like uh, pr- uh, sort of proceduralism in my mind facilitates community but uh, 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 you know like the um, uh, liberalism sort of, uh, as providing uh, a framework within which you work out disagreements, that that tends to me to have the potential to, um, to 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 work within a context of solidarity, um, and so 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 that that's been that, that's been my question in this debate for 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 years. Uh, it's my question reading. Crawford uh here which is yes uh, liberal individualism um uh uh, can trend toward authoritarianism uh does that mean we must discard liberalism um and just for folks listening we're, we're talking about uh uh not liberal as a euphemism for progressivism but liberalism as a uh, as in liberal democracy as uh, as in sort of a constitutionalism um uh so 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 yeah so so that's my is the is there is it possible to have a communitarian liberalism and if so what decisions get made what kind of people Uh, What are, like, the, the habits and impulses of a people living in a liberal democratic society that make it trend toward communitarianism as opposed to individualism?
1: Yeah. No, I hear that. That sounds really interesting. You've never discussed that with me, so we can we can talk I off. mean
0: we've broken new ground in this conversation. <laughs> can... I've never thought it before, Melissa. Oh, okay. <laughs> uh, yes,
1: inspiring. Well, no, because I'm actually I'm actually of the belief that I'm my brain isn't you know big enough to actually be one of the people who comes up with ideas here. I'm just I'm just constantly interested in asking the question and challenging people. Um, And I've been asking this question for years around, you know, is democracy the best way that we organize ourselves if we're to drill down? I mean, that's not to say that I think democracy is bad. It's just a question that I always ask. Um, But I I think one of the other problems that we have right now, because I do – I think we're in such a time of upheaval that I do think change is going to come. But I don't I don't know if it's going to come on this such an epic level if we're talking about if whether or not we keep liberalism or go with something else. Because I have no idea what that something else is, if it's like more communitarian or whatever. Is I actually think with the way things are structured right now, um, there's not a lot of room for ideation. There's not. And I, I know that I've complained and about this. the Crawford this, Tom,
0: article is so good on this. on this point. Yes, yeah. yes,
1: yes, yes that I actually don't think there's a lot of room for people to just sort of be sitting and thinking about these things and allowed to be talking about them without... Because I think um, right now, um, there's sort of going back to what we were discussing, you know, more so on the Dobbs thing, a a purity in language also sort of, I think, inevitably leads to a purity of ideas and not much room or wiggle room for... Mm. um, Yes, yes, yes. ...for sort of especially on this level when you need like giant ideas and ones where you have to parse through all the problems and the negative externalities besides the positive externalities that would come out of the way that we sort of organize and govern ourselves and think about how we um, belong to like an earth, earthly community of people. Um, I think that the purity in language is ultimately leading to a purity of ideas and a, and a sort of, uh, an anemic I know I use that word a lot or um, an infertile ground a dry hard ground like in a desert like we th- I think that's sort of what we have right now so it's exciting that people like Osita is going to be coming out with a book I think that we should be seeing dozens of books coming out coming out simply on this idea of not a diagnosis we've got plenty of people diagnosing everything I'm talking about people with not I don't think solutions is the right word but people with um, Some
0: imagination,
1: imagination. Yeah, yeah. Um, and I know I alluded to this in like my foreign policy piece on how there's no ideating or imagination in foreign policy. I, I mean, spoiler alert. I think it's across the board. Um, and it's not just always political as well. Again, like right. we're talking about like the social animal of people, like the spirit of people. Like, how do we organize ourselves?
0: Yeah. I will say, like my, we've talked about COVID a lot on the podcast. You know, I will say, like the 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 major. I I was very very in a self aware way. Um. I was cognizant of, and tried to hold to not putting my foot down too firmly on sort of public health decisions that were made, not because, gosh, like uh, self-protective, but, but more like I just did not, did not know. It, 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 I did not know how to, uh, how, how to, I could not, could not get to the place where I felt like, oh, I, I have a, a firm assessment of all the pros and cons so that I feel confident in in really taking a stand. Um, so I don't think like I'll look back on this time period and, and think, gosh, I really like, um, I really shouldn't have said this thing. I really shouldn't have um, taken that position what what I do wonder is if I'll look back, uh, and exactly what Crawford points out here, which is that, um, you know, I I lost sight of um, a conception of the good in the midst of this of COVID. And uh, too heavily leaned towards, like, triage. Uh, and, and and that that's one of the reasons why I enjoyed Crawford's article. Now, I could argue, uh, for those of you who read my Breaking Ground piece, my Breaking Ground uh, article uh, was actually... Directly on that point relatively early in COVID. And we'll link to that in the, in the show notes, which, which was exactly about sort of uh, uh, in the midst of the pandemic, uh, sort of becoming self-protective uh, and losing sight of the good of others. Um, but it's, it's, it's going to be interesting to see five years from now, Ten years from now, what, how history assesses the decisions that were that were made during during this during this period, um, I guess the last point I'd add there, which is that there's very little hope of like democratic accountability, in large part because of what Crawford talks about here, which is this abstraction uh, uh, and clouding of political decision-making into, uh, uh, following the science and, uh, these sort of like extra political decision-making bodies, um, in a way that, uh, does not lead towards like reform and refinement and learning from our mistakes. <laughs> uh, and so, yeah
1: yeah no the politicization of everything does not help yeah
0: anyone absolutely uh well hopefully uh we gave uh you the listener uh enough fodder uh, to get you through uh your week we're interested in your thoughts about this crawford article there's a lot to dig through here um would love to know what you think what you took away from it um and uh, uh, we thank you for, for listening. Please leave a review on iTunes, uh, Spotify, wherever you listen, uh, and uh, share the podcast with someone who you think will enjoy listening to it. Uh, Melissa, uh, any any closing thoughts, closing words?
1: Okay, so today I just want to mention this on the podcast because something really strange happened today at, at our house. It was, it was around 4 p.m. in the afternoon, and – uh, Michael saw it. I only heard it. We heard this huge plane rumble, like so loud. And Michael suddenly goes, Melissa, Melissa, come here, come here. So I run down the stairs and I just missed it. But we figured out later that a B-2 bomber flew like very low over the area where our house is. And we were freaked out because it's it's, just, it's a it funny. It was wild. It's a funny looking plane. So if you go look up a B-2 bomber, um, it's black. It's very angular when you look sort of from the top down or the bottom up. It's kind of got these jagged edges, and then if you look at it from the side, um, it look it's shaped like an actual real life bird. Because of course, the first person Michael and I texted after we saw this was my was my brother who's in the air force. Going, wait, we saw this plane and it looked like this, <laughs> and he and he helped us out with identifying it. Um, and I later found out by searching through Twitter that there was an air show at the, Dover, at the Dover Air Force Base. And so it was most likely flying there or flying from there. But um, I we mean, were, we I were mean, just like, why is there a plane These are the so comforting
0: slow? tales we tell ourselves. <laughs> I mean, yeah. yeah, sure. <laughs> <laughs> it was wild. I mean, I saw it for like, I think like a second and a half through like a pretty... Um, pretty, like, narrow window, you know, like a, like a, because we have, we have trees and, and it was like a, uh, like the frame that, that I saw it in was not too, so it was like, it seemed like it was hovering, uh, and they look amazing. They're uh, so cool. They're so, so cool. So, apparently, so I was freaking out. Yeah. I mean, and and it was so low. So so these self-bombers they do they they fly low. Um, so it wasn't like, oh, I saw it far off in the distance. It was like the thing was going to land in our backyard. It was <laughs> it was wild.
1: Yeah, and according to my brother, these planes, they're giant, apparently. And so that's why it flies really slow, because it's really big, and big planes fly slow.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Well, if you hadn't learned anything,
1: if you haven't learned anything
0: uh, up until this point, now we know that we've fed you some knowledge. Big big planes fly slow. (laughs) Um, Melissa, uh, I have to say you did everything. A wonderful job of uh, landing that plane.
1: I. Yaka, yaka. Wow! No, I, I planned this. I mentioned B two bomber at the end of that episode just so you could say that line.
0: Yeah. Yeah. No. Very good. Very good. Um, this has been. Uh, Where is the love? Always glad uh, to be with you. We'll talk to you next week.
1: Bye.